Hi, this is Walter Koenig, and you're listening to TV Confidential. Ed Robertson welcoming you to TV Confidential, radio talk show about television. Kathy Garver will join us later on this hour. Kathy Garver, the actress known around the world as Sissy Davis on Family Affair. Kathy is about to start production of a new TV show that not only brings viewers up to date on Sissy's life after a family affair, but has elements of such modern shows as Modern Family. Kathy Garver will join us later on in this hour. We hope you'll stay tuned for that. In the meantime, coming up in our second hour, we will welcome Jason Stewart. Jason Stewart, the Swiss Army Knife of Actors and one of the very first openly gay stand-up comedians. In the meantime, we'll start off this hour by welcoming back our friend Mark Cushman. Mark Cushman, the definitive chronicler of all things Star Trek and Gene Roddenberry. Mark's books on television include These Are the Voyages, Star Trek The Original Series, Volumes 1, 2, and 3, an epic-length biography of the original Star Trek that goes where no book on television has ever gone before. You'll recall that at the end of part one of our conversation on last week's program, we were talking about the often acrimonious relationship between Gene Roddenberry and Harlan Ellison, much of which stemmed from how upset Ellison was at the extent to which his original script for City on the Edge of Forever had to be rewritten in order to make it work for Star Trek. We also talked about how Perry Mason creator Earl Stanley Gardner was very much a mentor to Gene Roddenberry early in Roddenberry's television career and how Gene's pride unfortunately cost him that relationship. As we pick up the conversation, it goes to why even though Ellison wrote for television, he had sort of a love-hate relationship with television, and he really left his mark as a novelist in science fiction. And look, you know this because you've written for television. Unless you are the producer of the show, any script that is written for television is going to go through the typewriters or today the PC or Max of the showrunners, that's just right. a reality. Right. Yeah, it's, it's a collaborative uh, process. Uh, you do your first two drafts. I mean, you'll come in and pitch, and if they like the story you pitch, they put you on assignment, and you go write a, a treatment. And then they give you some notes, you revise the treatment, and then they tell you to go ahead and proceed to teleplay. And you write a first draft, they give you notes, you address their notes and do a second draft, turn it in, and you're done. Normally, on Star Trek, Gene would sometimes keep them doing additional drafts. Yeah. He would write a 20-page letter trying to get them to change five pages in their script for free because he was so swamped, and he was, again, doing these letters at night over a glass of scotch. Uh, he would finally roll up his sleeves, and he would go in and do his rewrite. Well, that still happens. That's the nature of television. And Paul Schneider, who wrote three episodes of Star Trek, or three, three scripts, two of them were produced, one wasn't. He, uh, he wrote Balance of Terror, and uh, what was the other one? Uh, Squire Gothis in the first season, which is the book you just read. Uh, he made a quote, it's in there, which I thought was so sad, but it's true. He said, sometimes by the time my show gets on the air, the only thing I recognize from my script is, is my name on the screen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, but again, that is the fact of life, particularly back then, going back to one of the themes or motifs of the These or the Voyages trilogy, or I guess now it's a quadrilogy. It's growing. It's growing. It's growing. But, but the point is, is you're bringing people back in time to the era. And back yeah. in the 60s and 70s, 
if you're a freelance writer, that again, that's the way it is. The script is going to go through the typewriter of, of whoever produces the show. You bet. You bet. And they got to address all the network's notes, too. So it, it goes through numerous drafts. You can see there in the book that each one of these Star Trek scripts would go through at least a half dozen drafts, sometimes more, by the time, uh, because he, he also, Roddenberry's taking notes from scientists. Mm-hmm. He, he told the scientists, you know, I, I'm not asking that everything we do on the show be probable, but I need it to be possible, mm-hmm. scientifically. And, and so every one of these scripts would be sent over to a group of scientists to get their feedback. The only show that was doing that, Arun Allen wasn't doing that, and, and Roddenberry would address these notes just as he, as he was addressing the notes from the network and so forth. Or his, his colleagues would do it, Jane Kuhn, uh, Dorothy Fontana, who was the story editor during the second season and so on. And so they, they had to redo all this, and they had to also make changes for budget purposes. You know, well, we can't afford to do this. Yeah, you which know. most freelance writers don't understand, at least oh. back then. <laughs> and, well, especially if you're writing for a show that hasn't even premiered yet on yeah. TV. You're writing blind, mm-hmm. and, and they don't know what this stuff costs. Yeah. And that, that's, to me, what's so entertaining about uh, uh, these memos that are in the book is for every episode, you're sitting in the room with Bob Justman, who he was the nuts and bolts producer, had to figure out how to realize what was on the written page. And Gene Kuhn and Gene Roddenberry, who were the rewrite producers, and Dorothy Fontana, who was the story editor, and Stan Robertson from NBC. And you're sitting in a room with them, in a sense, by getting these snippets of their memos all woven together. It's like you're sitting there listening to a conversation between them about this episode we're about to make. And you're learning why uh, NBC won't let them do this, how this is crossing the line in their mind. Uh, and you're learning where Bob Justman, who's so funny in his memos, you know, where he'll tell Gene Roddenberry and Gene Kuhn, if you do not take this scene out of this script, I'm going to start sending you the bills for my psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> because it's, it, it falls on his, his, in his lap to now find out how are we going to create the doomsday machine and things of that nature on a TV budget and schedule. So you get to see what they're fighting against uh, with every episode. It's much easier today with CGI. These are the Voyages, Star Trek, the original series, volumes one, two, and three, the story that Gene Roddenberry and Robert H. Jessman wanted you to know. These are the Voyages, Star Trek, the original series, volumes one, two, or three, available hardcover, paperback, and as eBooks through jacobsbrownmedia.com, amazon.com, where books are sold online. Volume one of these are the Voyages, Star Trek, the original series by Mark Cushman, also available as an audiobook through Jacobs Brown Media. I want to go back to Earl Stanley Gardner in this sense. I don't know whether you know this, but a few years ago, I co-wrote a book on The Perry Mason Show. And as part of my research, I uh, spent hours and hours at the Margaret Herrick Library down here in Beverly Hills, where Arthur Marks had just donated his personal papers to the library. And so when I first connected with Arthur and Arthur told me that, that became a part of my life in the best sense of the word. And while I didn't have access to every single memo that Gardner wrote, because Art had directed close to 70, 75 episodes, I had all the memos that Earl wrote for those 75 shows. Uh And so that gave me a good sense of who Earl 
was as a person for reasons we just discussed, because if you spend a lot of time reading one's memos and personal papers, even if you never have a chance to sit down with the person in person, it gives you a sense of who they are and, and what they think, particularly with regard to how passionate they were about their own property. And while Gardner was not involved in the day-to-day production of Perry Mason as Gene was with Star Trek and his other shows, they both had a desire for accuracy and passion, and they were vigilant in their protection of the characters and how they should be portrayed. Yeah, you can see why they were friends. You can see why they stopped becoming friends, because they were both very much alike in that way, Mm -hmm. very hands-on. And you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, reading their memos, you get to know them. Now, I never met Gene Kuhn. Because, you know, Gene Kuhn died in 1974, yeah. uh, just a few years after Star Trek went off the air. He's, he's the man who produced the second season mm-hmm. of Star Trek, because uh, Gene was exhausted by that point. So yeah. Gene kind of backed up to executive producer and brought in Gene Kuhn. Nobody had ever really talked to him. He, he only gave a couple very short interviews during uh, his life about Star Trek. So he was kind of the invisible voice, but he was such a prominent force in Star Trek. Well, these memos... You know, and you and you've barely gotten to him because he comes in towards the end of the season, first season, but uh, volume two or, or season two uh, is filled with his memos. He would write a twenty-page memo, and I don't put in a twenty-page memo. <laughs> paragraph or two from the twenty-page memo. Yeah. But he'd write a twenty-page memo on every draft of every script. Yeah. And there's, there's a funny response from one of the writers in the season two book where the writer responds to him by mail and says, I've gotten your 22-page memo on my 12-page treatment, <laughs> and I've gone through it. Yeah. And uh, I've made the changes, and I'm sending them forthwith. But after you read my draft, do not write me another memo. Pick up the phone and call me. I yeah. will not read any more of your memos. Uh, and he's talking to a producer this way, but this, this writer was really ticked off that he had to read a 22-page memo on a 12-page treatment. You read these memos as you experienced with uh, Gardner, and you really—I mean—you're there in the room with them. It's just you and them. Yeah, you know, they're yeah. alone. They're alone in their room, not typing, but um, usually recording on a dictaphone, uh, a conversation, talking to the writer, and you're sitting there listening to everything they say, and you really get a sense of them, probably more so than people who met them at a party and would spend a little time talking to them or yak with them on the phone here or there. I mean, you're really getting into who they are and how much they care about this property, uh, more so than most people can get by reading those memos. It's, a, it's a, like, a, was, it, was it for you the same as it was for me? It's like discovering a treasure trove. Oh, very much so. And it would be interesting because there are one or two cases where an episode that is widely considered to be one of the best shows ever produced or one that is beloved by fans, is one that the creator, in this case Gardner, did not care for. And you can kind of understand where he's coming from, because, again, he's vigilant in the protection of his characters. But by his own admission, Gardner did not understand television production or film production. And at the same time, having been burned as he was with the Warner Brothers movies, in the 30s and 40s, he was very, very skeptical. But at least that relationship was, they made themselves, they being the producers, made themselves available to Gardner. And a lot of times he would, particularly if it had to do with the point of law or a point of legal procedure, because as you know, the courtroom scenes were a very much, that was part of every episode of Perry Mason. And so if he had a suggestion about a 
a story point that had to do with procedure or argument or prima facie evidence or whatever, as Arthur Marx said to me, we would be stupid to ignore that because this is the man who knows the law and knows the character. And he was a lawyer too, wasn't he? He was. But at the same time, he would say his piece knowing that they would take it into consideration, and if it was the best move in terms of the television production, they would consider it. If it wasn't practical, they would say, okay, Earl, maybe next time. And Earl was was shrewd enough to know that if it worked in the ratings and the audience replied to it, okay, then they know what they're doing. Yes, but you can, at the same time, uh, I'm not surprised to hear you talk about it this way because I can understand. He wrote Perry Mason as a series of books, mm -hmm. and books are, are subjective. You're in the mind of the lead character. You're hearing his thinking process and everything else, where uh, TV and uh, screenwriting is objective. You don't get into their heads so much. You see what they do and what they say. Mm -hmm. So in his books, you know, he's approaching a, a mystery and an investigation in an entire different way than it's going to be portrayed in a one-hour TV show, which is 50 minutes, you know, where they've, they've got to solve the mystery and figure out who the real killer is uh, by getting them to break down on the, on the witness stand, as they would always do on that show. And uh, so it's a whole different way of approaching the story than Gardner would do in his books. And I, I can see where this would rub him wrong, but it's the nature of television. It's the only way it's going to be able to do it. He probably would have been happier if he had lived long enough to see it with the two-hour uh, TV movies they ended up doing with uh, Perry Mason and Raymond Burr for about a decade uh, years later. Because with a two-hour time frame, you can tell a story more in a novelistic uh, fashion. Very much so. And I, and I think I know Gardner well enough through his memoirs, so to speak, that I think he would agree with that assessment. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and us knowing writers as well. <laughs> <laughs> knowing how writers think and feel and react to things and, and so forth. So it's always fun for me, and it sounds like for you as well, Ed, to do these type of books because we get to get in there and find out the thinking behind the shows, behind the episodes of the shows, and, and see the passion. Uh, I'm just curious, as far as Perry Mason is, was concerned, it, it was on the air, I believe, for, what, 10, 11, 12 years? Nine years originally, and then when they brought it back in the 80s, that right. ran another but nine Back years. then, nine seasons was, was a lot of episodes, because yeah. they were doing 39 a year. Exactly. Uh, did it have a revolving door with producers? Because I'm just wondering if the producers got burned out on having to go head-to-head -head against uh, Earl Stanley Gardner. Uh, yes. It went through two or three sets of producers until the final... I mean, producers slash story editors. Back in the early days, story editors were sort of like unofficial producers. They just weren't called producers. You right. Know? Today they would be called a, a writer-producer. Yes. Yeah. But they went through several story editors in the early years. And then in the case of Arthur Marks, he began as an AD... Then he became a director. Then he became a producer-director. And as I say, he was the showrunner the last five years. And so he was one of the few consistents from show one to show 241. But he was consistent, as was Gail Jackson, as was Earl Stanley Gardner himself. And again, the fun thing is it, this speaks to what a good I was going to say reference book, but I'm going to use your term. A, a good biography of a film or television series should do, which is to try to capture the emotion, the intent, 
the passion, the desire of the people behind the scenes. And one thing that was very consistent with Earl, just as it was very consistent with Gene throughout his career, was his desire to be as true to the concept of the show and the truth of the characters as he, whether it's Gardner or Roddenberry, conceived them as best as possible. Yeah. You know, and not everybody wants to read our type of books, uh, but that's okay. We don't write them for everybody. If we were doing them for a mass readership, we would be doing these little books that just skim the surface of the subject like a lot of other people do when they write about television shows. I like to go for a deep dive. It sounds like you do as well, Ed, and I am familiar with your work, so I know it's what you do as well, Uh, because uh, I want to know what the thinking was behind there. Now, like with Star Trek, and I'm sure with the shows you've covered, is the, um, you'll watch these episodes, same producers, throughout the season they'll change out at the end for the next season because everybody's burned out mm-hmm. same story editor but one episode will be great and another episode kind of stumbles and falls on its face and you wonder well the same talented people are behind this yeah maybe different writers on the scripts but the scripts get rewritten a hundred times anyway so why did this one fall down and that's what i loved finding out when i went into the uh, the files is to see what would go wrong on a certain production that would kind of spin it out of control, and how did they feel about it? And then to see a memo from Bob Justman at the end of, uh, like, the alternative factor from the first season, which is probably the only bad episode from the first season, and he's saying, you know, what a shame we have to deliver this to NBC. Don't you wish we could just go bury it out on the back lot? You know, but it was things went out of control, and it just turned out, but they, they can't stop in the middle of the production. No, because you are contractually obligated to produce... Well, back then, I think I think Star Trek was doing 26 shows a year. 29 the first year. Okay, 20... You have air dates you've got to meet. You've got okay. to deliver an episode. Well, I go back to a line Quinn Martin uh, said around the time he produced The Fugitive. and He did four 30-episode seasons of The Fugitives. That's 120 shows total. And he said, when you have to produce 30 shows a year in an industry like television where it's volume driven and you got to get it done as quickly as you can to meet your production order. If you do 30 shows a year, 10 are going to be really good. 10 are going to be maybe two and a half stars out of four and 10 are going to be, you made them because you have to make 30 shows a year and you do the best you can given the circumstances. And again, in the case of these are the voyages, you give readers a chance. Okay. Well, if they had a little more time, maybe it would be, Maybe not two and a half stars, maybe be three and a half or four. Yeah. You did a book on the fugitive, didn't you, Ed? I did. That was my first book. I read that, but I don't have it. As soon as we get off the phone, I'm going to go buy it, because I've actually been watching The Fugitive at night. I'll get in bed, and I'll get a a series out, and if I'm not ready to fall asleep, if I'm not reading a book to fall asleep, I'll put it on. And I've been watching some of those episodes and really enjoying them uh, after not having seen them in a, a long time. So I'm going to get your book and kind of follow along as it goes along. But Quinn Martin was kind of uh, like Irwin Allen. He came up with high-concept shows, and he was a quality producer. He put his stamp on it, and you knew what you could expect. But he wasn't trying to, to hit a home run each time out. The thing about Roddenberry and the people at Star Trek is they were. And uh, they, they knew the mathematics, as you just said them so well, in quoting Quinn Martin. But um, they wanted every episode to be four stars. 
and they succeeded pretty well, especially during the first couple of years before the budget was just trashed so horribly. Every now and then, like Alternative Factor, uh, something would happen where it just went out of control and fell down. And that's what I loved about finding the memo from Bob Justman saying, I wish we could go bury this on the back lot, <laughs> you know, because they did not want to put that on the air. But yeah, they had to deliver it. And that's the way it worked back then. Now, you do 12 episodes a season, and you're doing them for HBO or Netflix or something, and you've got much bigger budgets, much bigger staffs, many more days to film an episode. And if you're not ready to start filming the next episode on Monday, You'll have, with the crew, take a week off, and you'll get the script ready and polished. They don't have to do it the way they used to do it on television. We'll continue our conversation with Mark Cushman after this quick time out here on TV Confidential. Become an advertiser or underwriter of TV Confidential and let our brand help promote your brand. To find out more, go to televisionconfidential.com slash advertise. Hi, my name is Lily. My mom and dad used to fight about money all the time. Then one day, I heard them talking about this guy. Some uncle I never knew called Uncle Sam. Well, they say this Uncle Sam guy wanted them to pay him like a gazillion dollars. And they didn't have a gazillion dollars. So they called this company they heard on the radio called The Tax Doctor. And The Tax Doctor worked with Uncle Sam's people. I think they're called the IRS, and they're able to work it out so my mom and dad didn't have to pay Uncle Sam very much money at all. So now mom and dad are happy, and I'm happy too. Thanks, tax doctor. If you owe $10,000 or more to the IRS or state, call now and pay less. 800-649-0142. 800-649-0142. That's 800-649-0142. Story Salon is Los Angeles' longest-running storytelling venue. We have live shows every Wednesday in Studio City, as well as solo shows, podcasts, CDs, and several books. Los Angeles Daily News calls Story Salon gemstones of narrative, something new, funny, astonishing. Sunset Magazine says, tales tall, tragic, and tantalizing. All of this makes Story Salon one of the most eclectic entertainment experiences available. You can learn more about us by going to our Facebook page or by visiting our website at www.storysalon.com. Accredited by Guinness World Records, welcome to Archival Television Audio Incorporated. A peerless TV soundtrack archive preserving the audio from television's first three decades, the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. The Golden and Silver Age of Television. For more information, go to atvaudio.com. Ed Robertson, author friend Donna Allen Figueroa, who I understand has a new book out. Yes, it's entitled Fall Again Beginnings. It's the first part of a four-part contemporary romantic series set against the background of working actors. Something that you know a a thing or two about. Well, you write what you know, and I have been working in the business for... Several years. It is not necessarily autobiographical, but it's based on... Sure, many of the experiences that the actors in my book have, many have happened to me, many have happened to friends of mine. It's not, if you're looking for Valley of the Dolls, it's not, it's grounded in reality. It is grounded in reality, and it's the first in a series. Yes. 
called The Fall Again series. Fall Again. Which is available as a paperback as well as an ebook and in Kindle at fallagainseries.com. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash tvconfidential, or at TV Confidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay Area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411. Or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.